You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and we're going to take a little break from the kind of normal things we talk about today because we're going to talk to, he's not going to like me saying this, an American hero. Um, Lee Ellis, I have known you for, gosh, 25 years, I think, at this point in time. We met uh, because I think you had written a book about your POW experience, maybe, uh, but I found out about you because my dad was a POW. I, I knew about you being a POW. Um, you turned out kind of were neighbors. I mean, we live close. You don't live that far. And so over the years, we have talked with Lee about leadership and about resilience and about commitment. And he most recently wrote this book, Captured by Love, uh, which is just they're true stories of romance from the Vietnam POWs. And I think that in this time of difficulty and just not knowing what's coming next, we need to focus on what's important. And so I wanted to have Lee come back in. Lee Ellis, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Martha. It's great to be with you again. So just give people kind of a capsule of your history. I know we want to talk about the book and that, but just so people kind of know who you are and how you got here. Well, I grew up on a farm between Commerce and Athens. Uh, I plowed mules and drove tractors, but I looked up in the sky and I wanted to fly airplanes. So I went to the University of Georgia, got an Air Force ROTC. I wasn't a very good student. I graduated in four years, but not a great student, except in ROTC, I was a distinguished graduate, and I got my commission the day I finished my classes. And And that would be what year? 1965. Okay, big one. Mm-hmm. And went straight to flight school. 53 weeks later, I got my wings and an assignment that said, this was August 1966, F-4 Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia. The war was building up in 1966, and so we were going to go through combat training in the F-4 Phantom and then head off to war, and that's exactly what happened. And so I went to Southern California, about 100 miles actually just south of where they flew, uh, where they filmed Top Gun and where the Navy trains out there in the high desert. We were. In fact, sometimes we'd run into them and get in a little dogfight. <laughs> and so, but it was great flying. I loved it. But we went to war as soon as we got finished, and so I went to Vietnam in July 1967, and I flew 53 missions over North Vietnam, about another 15 or so over South Vietnam, close air support for the Marines and the Army, and interdiction missions in Laos. But uh, on the 53rd mission, uh, my airplane blew up. We were doing some attacking up there, bombing, and uh, we got hit, blew up, and uh I took my parachute out. My airplane actually blew apart. It wasn't flying anymore. And I took the parachute ejection out of there and came down and was captured within two minutes. And you spent... That was, by the way, November the 7th, 56 years ago today. Today. Oh, my gosh. Well, you got a new lease on life. I mean, you probably didn't think so at the time. Right. Right? You thought this was going to be the end of your life. Exactly. Well, uh, I... 
be a fighter pilot, you got to believe in yourself and you got to be positive. We were well trained on how to do the ejection and coming down. And once they didn't shoot me right then, uh, I just kind of believed that God had a place for me in life and I just need to do my part and he would do his part. Once they didn't shoot me right then, <laughs> that is something. So you spent how many years in, I guess, the Hanoi Hilton is where you were. I was uh, there in five camps around Hanoi, but that's where I started was Hanoi Hilton. It took me two weeks to get up there. Uh, and I was there total in the POW camps five and a half years until I came home in the third big release group in 1973, right after the the peace agreements were signed January 23rd. The first group came home February 12th, the next one February 28th, and we came home in order of capture, sick and wounded first, and then order of capture, and I was the third big group, and the fourth group came out on March 14th, 1973, and the last group came out um, around March the 30th or 31st. Now, I know we always have, we still have people that are missing from that war. Uh, but as far as we know of those that were in captivity, did all of those folks come home? Yes, they did. Uh, there were a few that died. Uh, some died within a day or two after they were captured because they were so badly wounded. Uh, or maybe they got tortured or shot by one of the locals there. But uh, And there were a few that died in the time there. Some people uh, just went into a mental, a few, very few, Four or five went into a mental shutdown, and it wouldn't refuse to eat. And uh, we tried to force them to eat. Our teammates did, but they just died in that way. And then two or three were tortured to death uh, because they didn't want to kill you. They wanted to take you so close that you would do whatever they wanted you to do, but they didn't want to kill you because you were an asset to have an American uh, pilot alive in their prison camp. So most all of us survived. And the amazing thing is we came home healthy, and we can talk about that later as we talk about the book here. Yeah, I mean, and and we, of course, we are coming up on Veterans Day, of course, where we honor all the veterans. Uh, and I always make that distinction because Memorial Day is about honoring those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. Veterans Day is honoring everyone who has served. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people out there, whether they served like you did. Um, How many years did you ultimately serve? 25. 25 years. You made a career of it. Mm -hmm. There are also people like my dad that served six years. um, And and there are people everywhere in between, you know, and they're all serving. I have a a nephew that's um, he's put off retirement two or three times. He's in the Navy. Mm-hmm. He's on some kind of project that he can't talk about. Um, and it's funny, my, my brother-in-law is is big in defense contracting. And I told him the two places that he was going. He goes, oh, I know what that project is, but I can't tell you. <laughs> so he's on some sort of very special project that they keep. They've extended him two or three times for three months mm-hmm. because he could retire. So I think this June. He's going to be retiring after 23 years in the Navy, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been a great thing for him. Yeah. I mean, he's traveled the world. He did have to spend a stint in Guantanamo, which was no fun. But all in all, he lived in Italy. He lived in England. He lived uh, in different places yeah. you know, around the world and finished up in San Diego, which is not bad. Well, I finished uh, 25 years, and I retired uh, February the 1st, officially, in 1990. And uh, But I've had my own leadership consulting and training company for 27 years. Yes, you have. So I've been very blessed to uh, have two great careers. Now, you also were in prison camp with Senator John McCain, correct? Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Now, and I didn't live in the same cell with him, but we were in the same camp two or three times because they'd move you around from time to time. You know, it's like... They didn't want you to have connections. Yes, and sometimes the staff, you know, how staffs at the head of things make decisions that don't really, nobody really understands, and they would move people around. Somebody would decide, well, we're going to put all the Christians over here and take them to church so we can bring the press in and show how well we're treating them this year, okay? So they'd move people around. So you just never knew when you're going to be moved around. But uh, we were in the same camp, and I got to know him after the agreement was signed. We both moved to the plantation because our group at the plantation was going to come out on March 14th. We didn't know what day it was, but we were all captured in the fall of 67. I was captured 11 days after John McCain. So we got to know each other. He he walked with it. He, John McCain was very badly injured when he jumped out of his airplane, ejected there. Both arms were broken, leg was broken, and so he walked with a limp, and his arms were kind of hanging, weird looking. But we would walk up and down the camp compound and just to get exercise, and I got to know him and talk to him there. So we came home on the same flight, actually. Tell me why you wrote this book, and... Really, what you want people to get out of this? You know, at reunions, I kept hearing these rough stories. I'd known a lot of the guys and heard about their marriage and situation. And I knew that some of them, when we came home, a few of them came home, and their wives told them when they called them from the hospital in the Philippines, I'm out of here, boy. (laughs) I'm moving on. I'm not going to be married to you when you come home. I'm leaving you. And they had met someone, amazingly, and gotten married, and now at a, probably at our 45th reunion, after we 45 years after we came home, I thought, they've been married 45 years, and he met her right after he came home, and there were some single guys like me that met somebody and we came home, and we've been married all these years, and here's a guy who was there eight years, and he and his wife have been married 62 years. She, she was waiting on him when he came home. I said, Hollywood couldn't write a script this crazy. Somebody needs to write a story, a book of stories about these uh, relationships. But nobody had. And I'd written several books by then, so I said, okay, I'll do it. And then I reached out and contacted some friends and found out who a good romance writer was, Greg Godek, and brought him in to help me because I knew I couldn't make it romantic (laughs) in the parts that needed to be romantic. So we worked together with these couples and uh, got their stories and put them together and went back and forth. And so there are 20 stories in the book. Uh, About half of them were married and stayed married. Their wives were waiting on them. And we have stories of what these wives did. It was so amazing uh, to carry on and raise kids and uh, do without their husbands, not not knowing if they're dead or alive, sometimes for two or three years. And then the guys that came home and met somebody, and they met a widow who of their one guy met a widow. He was a widow. His wife died while he was a POW. And he... His best friend got shot down six months before him, and he came home and ran into his wife's, his best friend's widow, and they got married six months later, and they were married until wonderful marriage for 40-something years until both passed away. So they just seemed like great stories of commitment and love and uh, resilience at a time we need to think about resilience and marriage lasting. Uh, So I've been married... uh, Very soon, I'll be married 49 years, and I came home single. I was probably the last bachelor to get married. I (laughs) dated all these girls, and and they weren't the one. And then I met Mary, and all of us instantly, she wasn't what I was expecting, but I knew she was the one, and she felt the same way about me, and 
we fell in love and got married. See, and, and they don't the do this anymore because everybody's like looking online and they're swiping right and they're doing the old way. Now, I will tell you, my my kids kind of met, have met their spouses kind of the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, who was the youngest, was doing some of the online dating and all that. And in fact, I jokingly, she was an actress at the time, and I jokingly said she ought to write a play called All My Unavailable Men because, <laughs> you know, it seemed like it was just like a whole list of unavailable men. Yeah. But then she got fixed up by a mutual friend with one of her husband's friends, mm-hmm. and it happened that... Uh, there was a snowstorm on the first day, uh, the first night they went out, and so they were both out of work for like a week. And so they got to go on three or four dates in a week, which is really unusual when you're working and doing all the things you do. And the rest was history. I mean, yeah. he just was perfect for her. And, but it was the old school way, kind mm-hmm. of fixed up by friends. Oh, I think you'll like this person, and it worked out well. You know, there's so much to be said about being connected to friends, and that's that makes you healthy when you have friend connection. And that's one of the reasons that young people have such a high suicide and mental health rate. They spend so much time on their phone rather than being connected in friendship. But I tell people uh, who are looking for a different career, I said, Get connected to somebody in the area where you think you might want to be, and that's probably going to be the best way you can find the right place to work. And it's the same thing is true in marriage, I think, is being connected through friends. Do you feel like, and this is going to be a little bit of a left-field question, but one of my biggest peeves about the career world, which Mm -hmm. you're kind of in, is that now when young people, and I hear this from my mentees that are 20s and 30s, that they have to apply online. If if they don't fit the algorithm, they don't encourage, hey, call and follow up. They specifically say, don't call and follow up. And I've talked to the folks at the chamber and I've talked to some other things, and it is a problem because you hear on the one side, people don't want to work. But what I hear from the people that I, and granted, someone who's seeking me out to mentor them is someone who wants to get somewhere. I get that, that that's a different subset. But what I'm hearing is too consistent, that they're having such a hard time that they want to work. They want to better themselves. Mm -hmm. But the system that's not personal anymore is leaving them out. I think that's true, and that's why I keep saying to people, you got to connect. you got to stay connected with people because those people are going to help you find the right place to work and probably to meet the right people because if they're, con- if they're connected as your friends, you probably have similar values. You probably have totally different talents, different personalities, but you have the same values. And being connected to a workplace that has similar values and uh, has a similar vocation that you might be interested in, and then being connected to people, you're going to find someone who might be a good candidate to marry someday. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So let me, what do you think is the biggest misconception about Vietnam veterans, their relationships, and how their marriages go? Well, First of all, for Vietnam veterans, I read the book and met the guy that wrote it, I think, that uh, about the, hist- the actual data on Vietnam veterans. Uh, they're not near as unhealthy as they were proposed to be in, in, the pub- you know, in the public world because what happened was a lot of people claimed to be Vietnam veterans because they were homeless and they wanted help. And so people wanted to help them. So this was a good way to get helped if you're a homeless person or an alcoholic or whatever. And so it was hard to prove that they weren't a Vietnam veteran. So a lot of people faded into, uh, pushed Got into it. that. And that 
gave them a bad uh, Vietnam veterans kind of a bad mentality uh, perspective or reputation. But here's another thing. It is true that Vietnam veterans, like all veterans, you mentioned your father earlier, have suffered some from the war. And Vietnam veterans came home quickly. They would be in war one day, their buddy got shot up. And 48 hours and died. later, and they'd And 48 be hours later, they're sitting down at dinner table at home, and people they look around them, and they know people don't understand. They don't understand what's really going on. And I just lost this guy, and you want to talk about all this stuff. And so that caused some PTSD. Yeah, and I I think it's extremely um, important. And I want th- I have this theory about the mistake we made when we um, uh, the mistake we made in going to these one year war cycles. You know, because when we deployed people to World War II, it was until it was over. So the generals had an incentive to have victory Uh to know what victory is and what Uh it looks like Uh and if they don't know what it looks like they didn't send the people okay now we have these one-year deployments and so it's almost like like afghanistan was 21 year wars it wasn't a 20-year war right i have a theory about that anyway we're talking to lee ellis uh and his book is captured by love and Lee is, an, you know, an old friend of mine, and he is a POW. Um, and, you know, we're in this place right now, Lee, where you're seeing protests on the streets, all this kind of stuff. But there is a lesson from how Vietnam came home that's important to the kind of discourse that we're having right now. Yeah, I think, uh, obviously, there were some people who were against the war, and uh, that we stood up for that and said, hey, it's a free country. They can be against the war. But there are certain things you should not be disrespectful and throw rocks and spit on guys who are wearing a uniform, for instance. That's what happened a lot of times there. Fortunately, the POWs came home. We got welcomed home because there had been a lot of public information about us, which helped them, uh, communists stop the torture on us. That's how they changed our treatment, was putting pressure on them. But back to the, the whole idea of uh, a small percentage in today's culture can have a big impact because of the media and uh it gets a lot of attention you know there's no question in my mind that the russians spent millions of dollars to invest in the anti-war programs across the u.s and there were people who were communist mentality marxist type people who were supporting anti-war stuff because that was good for them I wish that uh, to divide America. Divide. They wanted. They wanted to divide us. Yes. And you see that happening today. I'm sure there is Iranian money, or or or, you know, factors related to Iran that are stoking these protests that we're seeing around the country. Yes, and it's also true, though, that people who uh, are the extremists in the Muslim era uh, uh, religion don't mind. They will do anything to win. Because we're their enemy. We don't think that way. Think about this. In in the POW camps, we would lie, cheat, and steal. I stole things all the time. Everything I could get away with from the enemy. Because they didn't give us anything. And we were held and locked up. And we would do everything we could to cheat them. We would lie to them. I was tortured to fill out a uh, three-page autobiography of stuff about him, information about me. And the only thing I put on there was true was my dad's first and last name. Well, 
if we can, if they can divide us enough, and but going back to some of the extreme Muslims, they think that lying and cheating and stealing is the way to win. And they're in our country, so they want to convince us of we can. It's okay to chop up a baby, you know? Why not? They're evil, and that's just the way they think. And that's this is not the majority of people who are Muslims at all, but some of the extremists are into that, and that's why they were killing the, you know, the Israeli young people. So we have a question for you. Please ask Mr. Ellis if he was ever. Based in Ubon, Thailand, uh, my brother Steve was an F-4 autopilot there from 67 to 69. He completed his service, returned home, and was the director of personnel services at North Georgia College until his death in 1982. Thank you, Mr. Ellis, for your service to this great nation. Well, interesting. When I left George Air Force Base in California and headed to uh, Pipeline Pacific, Southeast Asia, say, Pipeline Southeast Asia <laughs> When I got to the Philippines, we had to go through a week-long jungle survival course. All the pilots went through that. And then we went to our assignment. Well, my assignment was F-4 Ubon, Thailand. But when I got there, in the first day of class, the instructor said, and everybody going to basically said this, everybody going to Ubon, Thailand, to the 8th TAC fighter wing, stand up. Ellis and Saijon, sit down. Your orders have been changed. You're now going to Da Nang. I went down on the 7th of November, 1967. Lance Saijon, my buddy, went down on the 9th of November, and Lance is the only... He didn't. He got shot down two days after me. He was on the ground 46 days, evading the enemy with broken back broken arms and, you know, just incredibly wounded, got captured and died two weeks, uh, six weeks after he got to Hanoi. And he's the only Air Force Academy guy to receive the Medal of Honor. Wow. So, yes, Lance and I had an assignment to, to Ubon, Thailand, but it got changed on the way. And But I knew a lot of guys over there. And I went to Ubon. I diverted over there because of bad weather at Da Nang. I diverted to Ubon. And so uh, we have a uh, River Rat Fighter Pilots Association. And I see a lot of Ubon pilots. I was just there for our 50th real reunion after the war's over and uh, spent a lot of time with the Ubon guys. How important do you think it is, those reunions? Oh, very important. Have? Very important. It makes you help healthier because you can sit down and talk about the good the bad and the ugly that happened you can tell stories about this happened and this happened and then you can also talk about the sadness and the the pains and the suffering we had and share that with somebody else and that makes you healthier is there any resentment you think between the rank and file vietnam vet and how the POWs were treated. I mean, obviously they couldn't control that, but it was obvious the POWs were treated better when they came home than the rank and file Vietnam veteran. Was there? Did you? No, I don't think so. I don't think okay. so. And I think all of us who were treated so well when we came home, we've done everything we can to really welcome home and say, "Welcome home, brother." We thank you for your service and sacrifice, and to let them know we appreciate them. And I think we've done that now too. I mm-hmm. think that. After the first Gulf War, I think I saw a real change, right. and and people exactly. were going out of the, their way to find Vietnam veterans and thank them mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of that. And you know, uh, when I was working for Senator Purdue for his first campaign, uh, Senator McCain came down uh, to do an event at the Cobb uh, VFW, and. Um, I tell you what, he was on, Senator McCain was on. I got a chance to interview him, and he found out my son was considering 
going, I think, to the Air Force Academy. I think he was in contention for that. He didn't end up getting an appointment. But um, uh, he he says, give me your notes. And he gave me my note. He took my notes and he wrote, what's his name? And he said, Ricky, go Navy. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he was back in the kitchen. You know, and you forget about him being 80 years old. You know, he was about 78 or 80, whatever he was at that point in time. But he was in the kitchen, and there were these older ladies that were probably his age, and mm-hmm. he was just charming them like you would not believe. And I wish more people had seen that side of him. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's you know, whether you talk about Bob Dole or you talk about John McCain, other candidates of ours, and I'm a Republican, in the past, they don't show their fun side right. ever on the campaign trail. And I think people want to see that. Yeah, yeah. Well... Yeah, politicians get a little very concerned about their image, you know, and uh, I kind of understand that. But Well, and also in today's world where everything can get videoed, I mean, right. I ran for office, and I mean, the way to get a really bad picture of someone is to freeze frame a video. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Take a frame yeah. out of a video when yeah. your face is moving or your head is yeah. moving or something like that. And believe me, my opponent used a lot of those against me. Right. And that's okay because I knew what I was getting into. But you're mm-hmm. right. They're afraid if that if it's taken out of context, right. that it'll make them look bad. Let's talk about commitment because there's so much. Um, what you saw in Captured by Love was the commitment of these folks. And there's a lesson for today in that. Yeah, I think... Um we were brought up at a time when you made a commitment, you were expected to keep it. And uh, we were, as as POWs, you know, we had the Code of Conduct, the six articles from the Code of Conduct. Basically, it said we'd be faithful to our country, we'd be faithful, we would resist our enemy and not uh, collaborate with them, and we'd be faithful to our teammates who were POWs. So that, that's what those six articles said, basically. And we were very committed to that. We would take torture... Uh, over and over again in order to stay committed to that, uh, those those values and those commitments. And I think it's just so important. It really is so important to to have a good life. You must keep your commitments. And what we see today is we see politicians and business people that want something better. They want to look this way. They want to make this over here. And they slip over and they violate their character and integrity. People of good character. I'm telling you, we're all one step away from character. Every April the 15th, I tell my CPA to get me one step away from being a crook. (laughs) Just make sure it's all legal because I want to be able to show it. But it's one step away from being a crook. And, I mean, think about about how many governors have gone to jail. Just Google. uh, Recent, in the last 20 years. I think there are three or four of them in the last 20 years. Yes, and just Google on, uh, look up uh, mayors in jail. Hundreds of mayors have gone to jail. And I was in a ministry in in, um, uh, Montgomery, Alabama. We used to go to the prison ministry at the federal prison there. And that federal prison is where some of the the federal government people went. It was a a white-collar prison. The plush prison. The plush prison, okay? And I had a ministry there. And uh, it was just amazing how those guys admitted they got one stepped over. What role? You've mentioned faithful things throughout this interview what role did faith play in you getting through your captivity but also since you got home 
Yeah, you know, I grew up uh, going to church every Sunday in a little Baptist church down the country north of Athens. I became a Presbyterian in college. I had strong faith, and but as a young fighter pilot, I was drinking and partying a good bit. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I got to Vietnam, I started going to to church services on Sunday if I wasn't flying that day. We flew seven days a week, but uh, I'd find in the morning or afternoon they'd have something on there. But here's the thing. When you lose control of everything, you don't control your life, and you've been shot down and captured like that, all of a sudden you start looking up. In fact, some of the guys and their stories in this book, a couple of the guys, I don't know we mentioned in the story, I think one of them we did, but uh, a couple of the guys said, you know, when I'm coming down in my parachute over enemy territory and there's guys on the ground are shooting at me and my wingman, I looked up and said, Lord, I'm sorry, but I hadn't talked to you in a while, but I, I need your help. <laughs> and these guys, would, we would pray several times a day. Some guys would, were able to pray for hours at a time. And so faith was very, very strong, important part there, and it has remained in our lives because we know that for some reason we were still alive. We all had buddies that had died and been shot down and didn't come back home. Uh, many, I lost four roommates in that war, and two of them before I went down and two of them after I went down. Guys that had been roommates in flight school or combat training or at the war. So... We knew that we'd been very blessed, and our faith was strong, and, you know, you can't control. You do what you're supposed to do. You operate with character and integrity and based on your strong values, and God takes care of the rest. And we don't talk enough about all of that and expecting the highest from people. And, you know, you mentioned Larry Burkett earlier in the interview, and Larry was just one of my favorite people, and it was back when he did Christian Financial Concepts, that changed and became Crown Ministries, I mm-hmm. believe, mm-hmm. And uh, but I remember, I'll never forget, he was sitting here doing an interview and talking about capitalism, and that's another thing that isn't being taught the right way today in, right. in colleges, but he said, capitalism is the only form of economics that grows the pie, but it needs a foundation of morality mm-hmm. because capitalism without morality is just greed right exactly and uh, we're struggling with that every day i think uh i think there are a lot of people that are working to strengthen the values in the corporate world and i think that's really strong and helpful but it's a battle for every human being where as i said earlier we're all one step away now we have an honor code I have a website, leadingwithhonor.com, and on there you can go and download the honor code. There's seven articles. I mentioned earlier the uh, the code, the six articles we had, the code of conduct in the POW camp that we had all memorized. Well, the honor code has seven articles that we all look at and say, yes, yes, I agree with that. I'm always that way. I tell the truth. I keep my word. I do all these things, but it's very difficult. And it's a daily battle for every one of us to be the person we want to be and to be a person of total integrity. Faith comes into that and helps us do that and helps us want to correct back quickly. And take ownership. How do we get back to, because we're at a fever pitch, kind of like I'm sure back in the 70s, the students that were protesting on the campuses couldn't talk to the people that didn't agree with them. I'm sure it was like that. We didn't have everybody with a phone and a video and all of that kind of stuff. It was more Mm one-on-one. And it's like that now. I had a conversation with my daughter on the way in where she says, Mom, I know you're going to tell me the truth, but the things I'm seeing on my social media feeds are so 
anti because she's younger Mm -hmm. so anti to what i've been taught and what i believe Mm -hmm. how do i deal with that you know and i'm thankful that she does that all right i'm thankful that my children still ask you know what do i think about something you know it's always a good thing uh because they know that i'm going to tell them i might be conservative in how i view things but i've looked at all sides of an issue and i've i've made the decision that way we're in that place right now though where there's a, a substantial group of people that won't talk to another group of people and won't listen. They're just yelling at each other. I mean, there was a guy that was killed in in California uh, that a, a, a pro-Palestinian protester hit him on the head with a bullhorn. He died. And they're still out there chanting and protesting with blood on the ground of some poor old man that got killed. It's just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we have to be very careful because the media is going to be uh, invaded by a small minority of people who really want to change us and to just divide us. This is the whole issue. They want to divide us. And, you know, the left and right has gotten so uh, aggressive and so distant that a lot of families, they can't even talk about, they don't even like to see each other anymore. They don't have reunions anymore because the families are so divided over the political realm. And that wasn't that way when you and I were growing up. You know, we had, yes, you're on this side and I'm on this side. You're a Democrat and I'm a Republican or vice versa, whatever. And we had, we respected that because it was slightly different, but not like it is now. And again, I still believe that those people that are fighting even politically do not represent a huge portion right. of right. either side. They're right. just vocal. Right. They're, you see them everywhere because, I don't know, clicks or whatever it happens. And I'm still trying to get my head around because I use social media. It's a great tool to get information out. And I do use social media. But I still try to put as much as possible kind of boundaries around it as far right. as what I share. Yeah, boundaries are very important, and they've been kind of wiped out in our culture recently. If you're going down Georgia 400 from the Dawsonville uh, Outlet Mall down to Atlanta, most any time of the day, the average speed going through coming on Georgia 400 is 70 to 75. The speed limit is 65. But you're going to have people pass you on the right going 85 or 90, and people pass you on the left going 85 or 90 every day. And there'll be... From the time I get into the city limits going through on 400 and, and coming, there'll be uh, four or five people are going to pass me on the right exceeding 75, and there are going to be four or five people, a lot of people on the left that are exceeding 75. And it's like these are regular middle-class people. These are not a bunch of teenagers or a bunch of hoodlums. These are regular middle-class people. And so where are the boundaries? Where is the accountability? And, of course, when I go to Washington, D.C., I almost get depressed because I feel like there's not much accountability. Absolutely. The book is Captured by Love. Inspiring Uh, through romance stories from Vietnam POWs. Go to POWromance.com. You can download the first 50 pages free. POWromance.com. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.